Chapter 13 of The Weird Picture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Weird Picture by John R. Carling. Chapter 13 The company departed for the village church, and the baronet, my uncle, and myself, Aided by the servants, whose zeal had been stimulated by the promise of a liberal reward to whomsoever should discover the picture, proceeded to search the length, the breadth, and depth of the abbey. Every room, including the bedrooms of the guests, was subjected to a careful inspection. Places, the most unlikely to be selected as the hiding place of the famous chef d'oeuvre, were examined by keen eyes, but all in vain. We might as well have looked for the Holy Grail said by poets to have vanished somewhere in this very neighborhood. Late in the afternoon of the day, it was Christmas Eve, we stood on the terrace overlooking the undulating extent of woodland that formed the grounds of the abbey. The sun was now low down on the horizon. Its dying splendor tinged with red hues, the ivy-mental nun's tower that rose in solitary grandeur on one side of the abbey. The baronet's eye was resting on this tower, and his thoughts reverted to the tenant of it. Angelo can explain the disappearance of the missing picture, he said suddenly. You think so? Returned my uncle. I am loath to suspect him, but I cannot help thinking that he carried it off in the night. He carried it off well in the morning, then, responded my uncle jocularly. Who would have thought, from his surprise and agitation, that he himself had removed it? His surprise and agitation were assumed to disarm suspicion, Perhaps, but what is his motive for the removal? From certain things you have told me, I believe, he is determined that neither you nor Frank shall see his great masterpiece. The baronet's opinion was one that I had long held. Why not, in heaven's name? cried my amazed uncle. Ah, that is a reason best known to himself. I fancy, it seems absurd to say it, that the picture, when seen by you, will reveal something that is entirely passed over by others. Something determinal to himself. I mean, what I cannot undertake to say. What can he have done with it? It is inside that tower, replied the baronet confidently. Why there? Why in existence at all? If he is so anxious, as you say, to prevent us from seeing it, the safe plan would be to destroy it altogether. That would be the course of a wise man, yes. But Angelo is a fond parent, you see. His picture is his favorite child, and he cannot bring himself to destroy it. Perhaps he intends, after your departure, to return it to me uninjured, concocting some cock-and-bull story as to where he found it. I trust to goodness he will do something of the kind, continued the baronet. So valuable a thing is no trifle to lose. If I could obtain proof that he has taken it, I would certainly bring him to book before the law. Can we search the tower? I said. Angelo is absent. Exactly, but he takes care to lock the door every time he leaves it. Have you no other keys that will fit the lock? The key of that lock has peculiar wards. There is no other like it in my possession. Well, let us go in the tower, I said. He may for once have left the door unlocked. Who knows? Not very likely, but we may try. The tower, octagonal in shape, was situated at a little distance from the main body of the abbey, 
to which was joined by a covered walk consisting of wall on one side and a row of pillars on the other it contained but one long story lighted by a large gothic casement twelve feet at least from the ground access was gained to the tower by a flight of steps surmounted by an oaken door studded with iron nails the nun's tower i murmured as we walked down the cloister how come the place to receive that name tradition says that when this place was a convent nuns who broke their vow of virginity were tried in this tower by their ecclesiastical superiors or if you will inferiors and were led hence by a subterranean passage to their doom which was persipation down a deep chasm the book i spoke of last night a book i firmly believe to have been stolen and not mislaid will tell you more about those dark days than i can on reaching the foot of the steps leading to the tower we mounted them and having tried the door found it locked it would have been strange indeed smiled the baronet if angelo had left his studio accessible bending down i applied my eye to the keyhole what do you see asked my uncle it's impossible to see anything i returned something dark within it may have been a folding screen the back of a chair any piece of furniture in fact standing immediately behind a keyhole prevented me from obtaining a glimpse of the interior a cold cell to paint in during the depth of winter remarked my uncle does he work without a fire scarcely responded the baronet a servant makes up the fire every morning and brings in coal enough to last a day but angelo takes good care to stand by all the time with a curtain drawn over his easel and his artistic paraphernalia covered by a cloth and does not begin work till he is alone the concealment displayed by angelo over his new work of art made me only more curious to obtain a glimpse of the studio so i clambered up the ivy towards the gothic casement and peeped through the diamond panes to find that a curtain of violet silk had been drawn across upon my word i called out angelo takes precious good care that no one shall discover his art secret if secret he has there is a piece of violet silk stretched across the casement you can't open the window and get in i suppose said sir hugh mounting still higher i stepped upon the window sill and holding on to a mullion by my left hand shook the casement with my right but the fastenings were too secure to permit my forcing an entrance so i scrambled down again he hasn't put up that curtain exactly as a screen of concealment remarked the baronet stepping backwards to take the view of it in this new picture of his the amphitheatre so he tells me is represented as being partly screened from the glare of the sun by a purple valerium the curtain that you see up there faces the south angelo has no doubt been trying an experiment studying the effects of violet-coloured rays upon the sanded floor for he has had it sanded the baronet explained to make it resemble the pavement of an arena if sir hugh really believed that this was the reason why angelo had covered up the window he had greater simplicity that i gave him credit for as we were turning to go away my unsatisfied curiosity induced me to take a second peep through the keyhole an ejaculation of surprise escaped my lips and i rose to my feet in perplexity when i looked through the keyhole just now there was something dark within that prevented me from seeing anything that dark something whatever it was 
has vanished. I can now see nothing but a white surface. The baronet and my uncle, stooping down to the keyhole, satisfied themselves of the truth of the last part of my statement, and then both looked at me with half-doubting expression. There is something white in front of the door now, said Sir Hugh. Are you certain it was dark before? Quite certain. There's someone inside. Can Angelo have come back? The baronet whispered. You remember he said at breakfast that he might finish his picture within a few hours. Is he at work now? This idea made us look rather mean. It was not very nice to be caught playing spy upon a man in his supposed absence. Only the oaken door separated us from the cell within, so that the artist, if he were there, must have overheard our suspicions of him. We all three listened with our ears pressed close to the door, but could not detect the faintest sound within. Angelo, are you here? cried the baronet, rapping on the door. We have come to see how the picture is going on. There was no reply, and all our words and knockings failed to evoke any. You must have made a mistake, Frank, said my uncle, as we relinquished our efforts and turned to go away. I think not, I replied, having my doubts on the matter nevertheless. Angelo can be painting now, remarked Sir Hugh. The dim twilight would not permit it, and if he has been at it earlier in the day, his fire would surely have been lit. But, glancing back and pointing to the little chimney turret on the battlemented roof to the tower, we have seen no smoke. Yes, returned I, but if Angelo wishes to keep his presence there a secret, and secrecy seemed to be a sine qua non in all his undertakings, he won't have a fire. Well, then he'll be confoundedly clever, if his chilled fingers can handle the brush with any delicacy of touch in this cold atmosphere, said the baronet with a shiver, for the air was extremely damp and cold. Sir Hugh, said my uncle, if you are certain that the picture is concealed in this tower, why not force an entrance? Well, replied the baronet doubtfully, there is just the possibility that it may not be there, which would be rather awkward, for Angelo, on his return, would see the broken lock and learn that we have been playing spy on him. Which is exactly what we have been doing, added he with a cynical smile, but there is no need for him to know it. Evidently, the baronet regarded espionage very much as the ancient Spartans regard theft. There was no dishonor in the act. The dishonor consisted in being found out. I shall tell Angelo, Sir Hugh continued, when he returns that we have throughoutly examined the abbey, including the apartments allotted to my guests, without coming upon the picture. We must, in common fairness, subject even his scar studio to the same investigation. And supposing he refuses to submit to this, said my uncle, then I shall assert my authority as master of Silverdale and order an examination of the tower. Ah, how cold is it, he added. Let us get back to the library fire. I feel frozen. Twilight was coming on a pace, and a dim silverly mist was gradually veiling the landscape from our view as we turned to enter the abbey. My visit to the nun's tower made me anxious to learn whether the artist had returned. I questioned some of the servants on this point, but none of them had seen Angelo since the morning. So I was forced to the conclusion that I had been mistaken in supposing anyone to have been in the tower. 
on repairing to the library, I found my uncle and the baronet discussing the technicalities of some parliamentary bill of the past session, a topic that was speedily cut short by the entrance of Fruin, the butler who carried under his arm an artist's portfolio filled with paper and sketches. "'What have you there, Fruin?' said the baronet. "'A portfolio, Sir Hugh. I found it hidden under some leaves in one of the vases on the west terrace.' A queer hiding place for it, remarked the baronet, taking the portfolio and examining it. How came it there, I wonder? Vasari's, of course. He was showing the ladies some sketches this morning before breakfast, and suddenly closed the portfolio and would not allow them to see any more. He said they must be tired of them, but Flory declared he had shut it up because there was something he did not want her to see, and she seized the portfolio and ran off with it. I suppose you must have hidden it where you found it, Fruin. Thank you for bringing it here. The butler withdrew, and the baronet pushed the portfolio over to me. Here you are, Frank, he said, if you are interested in Vasari's sketches. Not at all, I replied carelessly, and then a thought struck me. Stop, though. You say Vasari would not let all of them be seen. More secrecy. What's the game this time? Let me try to find out. I drew a chair to the table and began to examine the contents of the portfolio. They consisted of sketches, ink, pencil, and crayon, in every stage of execution, some being unfinished outlines and other finished to perfection. They embraced a vast variety of subjects, single objects, landscape, sketches for historical pieces, and copies of statutory from the antique. Like a detective seeking for evidence, I examined each sketch suspiciously, holding it near the light and turning it over to see whether there was any mark of writing on the back. I came at last to twelve sketches of different heads, and unfastening the tape that kept them together, I laid them out on the table and drew my uncle's attention to them. You see these twelve heads? They have been in this portfolio a year. For Vasari showed them to me last Christmas and asked me whether I recognized any of them. As a fact I did not, but I fancied at the time that he had an interested motive for the question, and now I am pretty certain he had. My uncle looked at them carefully. You don't see a likeness to anyone you know? No, I replied. Try again? There was one face that seemed familiar. It was that of a man about thirty years of age but the head was quite bald and the face destitute of beard and moustache i may have seen this fellow i said i seem to have a faint recollection of him my uncle laughed your recollections of your brother are growing very faint indeed if you do not recognize that face can't you see that it is george george i cried yes that is george's face minus hair beard and moustache now that the likeness to George had been pointed out, I could see it clearly enough. But the absence of all hair had imparted so a different look to the face that I doubt whether I myself would have ever discovered it. And why the deuce should he sketch George like that? I asked, throughoutly perplexed. I remember how relieved he seemed when I did not recognize it. Can't say, replied my uncle. It's another of those little mystification which he delights to put upon his friends. By the way, wasn't Caesar bald and beardless? Like laurels on the bald first Caesar's head, I murmured. Yes, at the time of his death he was, but I don't quite see the relevancy of your remark. Merely a passing thought, he said lightly. 
it's not much of a portrait of George. It's like him, and yet not like him. And there is a most uncanny expression about the eyes. He threw aside the sketch, which the baronet took up. As soon as his eyes fell upon it, a half-repressed exclamation escaped his lips, and setting his gold-rimmed glasses upon his nose, he took a long and careful look at the drawing. Do you say this is Captain Willard? he asked, elevating his eyebrows in surprise. Yes, I replied, that is my brother. He is a handsome man, said Sir Hugh, studying the sketch as if it were some sort of puzzle offered to him for solution. Do you know him? I asked. I have never seen Captain Willard in my life, he replied, laying aside the drawing. It would have been wrong to doubt his word, but if anyone else had spoken in the same curious, halting way, I should have hesitated to believe him. I was on the point of asking him the reason of this evident surprise, when my attention was caught by a series of remarkable drawings that my uncle had just taken out of the portfolio. There were completed sketches of gravestones and monumental pieces, which I supposed had been drawn by Vasari at the request of some cemetery mason in want of new designs, or else were the result of some competition at an art school. Whatever their origin, they had provided Vasari with an opportunity of displaying his inventiveness and taste, and the result was a collection of from twenty to thirty funeral monuments of various graceful shapes, decorated with broken columns, reversed torches, urns, crosses, breaths, and other objects emblematic of death and immortality. But what interested me most in this collection was a sort of a grim humor, which had taken the shape of placing these monuments the names of many distinguished men, and from my knowledge of the and from my knowledge of the artist's character, I readily discerned that the persons thus selected were those from whose opinions he deferred. I suppose his eccentricity found a kind of pleasure in thus consigning the tomb men whom he disliked. Some of the epithets served only to display the morbid vanity of men, as for instance, Sacred to the memory of Frederick Lord Lathan, B.R.A., who was succeeded in the presidential chair by the equally eminent, if not superior, artist, Angelo Vasari. A future Walpole, in search of anecdotes of painting, must not overlook the following curious incident. In memoriam, Alma Tadema, the star among artists, who died with grief at the eclipse of his name by the rising sun, Angelo Vasari. A god, said the baronet, who was looking on one of the half-abstracted air he had displayed since the discovery of George's likeness. I don't wonder he shut the portfolio up when he came to the exhibition of his vanity. What a conceited fool the fellow is. Casually turning over the rest of these drawings, we came upon the following singular epithet, inscribed on a monument crowned with a piece of sculpture representing the crucifixion. To the memory of the sublime Giotto, who, in his zeal for art, set at defiance those fantastic notions which causists call morality, and whose example inspired the genius of Angelo Vasari, with the idea that gave birth to that noble masterpiece, the fall of Caesar. Giotto? Giotto, repeated the baronet with thoughtful air. He means the Giotto, of course. Without doubt, responded my uncle. But what does he mean by the words setting at defiance those fantastic notions which causes school morality? Can't say I'm sure, replied Sir Hugh.
I'm not sufficiently versed in Giotto's history to understand the illusion, but perhaps Frank can explain it. I'm sorry to say I'm exactly in your position, I returned. Learn, gentlemen, we are, laughed the baronet, and then, after a brief interval of silence, he continued. I would like to know what this illusion is. For a reason, he added in grave tone. It refers undoubtedly to some incident in Giotto's career. If we knew what this incident was, it might furnish us with the clue to the mystery that surrounds the productions of Angelo's picture. Well, let us try to solve the enigma, said I, going to a bookcase and taking therefore a volume entitled The History of Early Italian Art. Here's a book that is sure to contain a biography of Giotto. I turned to the index, and having found the pages referring to Giotto, I glanced hastily over the biography of the great Fa Presto, stopping now and then to read aloud, for the edification of the baronet and my uncle, some item that I deemed worthy of notice. At length, in the course of my reading, I came to the following passage. A horrible story is told in connection with his picture of the crucifixion. It is said that Giotto persuaded the man who acted as his model to be tied to a cross, and while in this helpless state, he stabbed him, in order that he might be the better enabled to limb the ghastly fidelity of the dying agonies of the Savior. What do you think of that? said I, looking up from my reading. If that isn't setting morality at defiance, what is? You've hit on it, said the baronet. That's the story Angelo is alluding to for C. He has put the crucifixion scene on the tomb, but what does he call Giotto's deed? A zeal for art? Surely he doesn't approve this horrible act. It would seem so from his language, I returned blankly. Whose example, said the baronet, reading from the epithet and tracing the words with his forefinger, inspired the genius of Angelo Vasari with the idea that gave birth to that noble masterpiece, The Fall of Caesar. What can he mean, Leslie? He continued, addressing my uncle. Not, he added with a grim smile, that he, too, stopped his model for the sake of an artistic effect. That would be too much of a joke, to murder a man for the sake of producing a realistic picture. And yet, he concluded with a perplexed air, that's the only meaning we can give to his words. He stared uneasily at my uncle, who stared uneasily at me. I don't know what to think of it, said my uncle. He certainly seems to approve Giotto's act, and intimates that he copied his example in painting his own picture. This must be the language of a madman. There's a method in his madness, then, remarked the baronet. There's a method in his madness, then, remarked the baronet. He had wit enough to hide this from the ladies this morning. We read daily of terrible murders committed by men who are mere names to us. In the columns of the newspaper, much crimes do not seem out of place. They are quite natural. We almost look for them, but to learn that a person within our own circle, who has sat at our table, is on familiar terms with us, has his hands stained with the blood of his fellow men? This is so new an experience that we cannot bring ourselves to believe. For a long time, we sat looking at each other in silent surprise not knowing what to make of the singular effusion to the memory of Giotto. It must be, it must be, murmured the baronet at length. It's quite clear to me that Angelo stabbed his model. No, no, it can't be, exclaimed my uncle, unable to keep his chair in his excitement and nervously pacing the apartment. 
You do not really think that Angelo would murder a fellow mortal merely to produce a realistic picture? Why not? replied the baronet coolly, as if the supposititious act were the most natural one in the world. Such instances have occurred in the history of art. Science, too, has had its murders. Did not Vesalius on one occasion dissect a living man? From his boyhood, Angelo has thrusted for fame as an artist. His long line of early failures, therefore, may have had the effect of disturbing his mental balance. Constant brooding over the neglect offered to his genius may have so obliterated the line that divides right from wrong as to have led him in despair of obtaining success by any other method to imitate the example of Giotto. Good God, and this man might have been my son-in-law, cried my uncle. Let me congratulate you upon your lucky deliverance from such a relationship. If Angelo is an assassin, said my uncle, who was the victim? That is the question which the picture will answer. You mean that Angelo has transferred the features of the dead without alliteration to the canvas? That is my meaning, yes. And yet, remonstrated my uncle, he exhibits his picture in Paris, in a public gallery open to all. That is the very way to betray himself. Exactly, if the dead man were well-known person, which probably he was not. I sat silent, revolving in my mind the whole history of the strange picture, as I was by no means disposed to accept the baroness' theory that Angelo was an actual assassin. I remembered the date assigned by the artist for the completion of his work. It was Christmas Day, the day of my brother's departure for the continent. I recalled the red stain on his vest. Could it be that both George and Angelo were concerned in a murder? But why should one remain and the other become a fugitive? Was it more guilty of the two that had fled? And had Angelo, for his own purpose, simply taken advantage of a deed that George had alone committed? Was the officer who had caused the fracas in Vasari Gallery at Paris none other than George, who, angry with the artist for having painted a picture that might lead to the detection of the crime, had attempted to destroy it? Was the silver-haired old man, Matteo Cariccio, an accessory to the deed? Touched with remorse, had he confessed his part in the plot to the priest of Rivoli only to meet with death a day later at the hand of the man whose secret he had betrayed? I turned to listen to the baronet who was holding forth to my uncle. You see now, Leslie, said he, why he exercised such secrecy over the production of this picture and why he kept his studio door locked while painting it. It was because the model that he painted from the model for his fallen Caesar was in point of fact a dead man. My uncle's reply was startling in its suggestiveness. That may have been the reason why he kept his studio door locked then, but why does he keep it locked now? Yes, over this new picture of the girl Martha, said I. The baronet had not considered this point. Why does he keep his door locked now? He repeated, pausing in a curiously deliberative manner between each word. Ah, why? He made a long pause, not for a similar reason, surely, and yet he made another long pause. He said at breakfast, you know, that he might finish the picture today. He was playing with his knife very curiously at the time. What could he mean? Good God, what could he mean? Not that... He paused, afraid to give utterance to his suspicions. For a few moments we dressed not speak, for a dim presentiment of some awful tragedy to come had stolen over us. 
The baronet was the first to break the silence. The tower must be watched tonight, he said in a hoarse voice. Sir Hugh, said my uncle sternly, if Angelo be the fiend you think him, he must be arrested at once. That will require a magistrate's warrant, I said. Right, and we will procure it without delay, observed the baronet rising. Colonel Montague is the nearest magistrate. He lives at the Mons, five miles from here. The carriage can take us there and back in an hour, and... His further words were checked by the sudden appearance of Fruin, who, without having waited to knock, entered the room and, brimful of excitement, cried, I found the picture, Sir Hugh. The devil you have! Where on earth was it? In the nun's tower, to be sure. The nun's tower? How did you manage to get in there? Fruin's mother changed at once from excitement to soberness. Well, Sir Hugh, he began with the air of penitent. It was wrong, I admit, to play the spy on a gentleman, but, but, it's this way, you see. I have always been suspicious of Mr. Vasari and his doings, so, so that's how it was, you know. I haven't been doing exactly what's right, but, but, you see, he hesitated and stammered so much that the impatient baronet, with, with a deprecatory wave of his hand, cried, There, there, go on. I forgive beforehand everything you've done in consideration of your having found the picture. Highly gratified by this plenary indulgence, the butler began again in a more confident tone. Well, Sir Hugh, you remember that Mr. Vasari hadn't been here a week before I said to you, the Italian gentleman has come here for no good? I remembered, Fruin, and I told you not to pass remarks on my visitors. So you did, Sir Hugh, so you did replied the butler, nodding, as if the reprimand were a decided compliment. And they went off in a huff, determined to keep my own counsel for the future. Determined, too, in spite of your rebuff, Sir Hugh, to keep a watchful eye on the foreign gentleman. Foreigners are always suspicious characters, he added aggressively. What first made me suspicious of Mr. V, he continued, was your telling me that he had chosen the nun's tower as a studio. Why couldn't he take a nice, cheerful room in the abbey, and not the cold stone cell? You've got a motive for living in that place, I thought to myself. You're up to something queer, and you want to get as far away from us as you can, so that we shall not be able to overhear anything. Then, when I learned, with the exception of Adams, who lights the fire in the morning, no one must enter his studio, not even you, Sir Hugh, I grew more suspicious still. What's your little game? I thought. Why, do you know, I've looked out of my bedroom window at one, two, and three in the morning. I've seen a light burning in the tower. What's he doing there at that unearthly hour? He can't be painting. No one paints by lamplight. I've long had a desire to have a peep in that tower, to learn what goes on there. And so the other day, when Mr. Vasari had gone to London, I got the blacksmith to examine the lock of the door for the purpose of making a key to fit it. Here it is, he continued, holding it aloft on his forefinger. I received it only a quarter of an hour ago, but as soon as I got it, I went at once to the tower to have a look at the place before Mr. Vasari should return. Brown and Tompkins were with me, carrying dark lanterns. We tried the key, and the door opened easily. Brown and Tompkins didn't like to enter. They were afraid, so they stood at the head of the steps and turned the light of their bullseye into the place, for of course it was quite dark while I went in. I looked round, there was no one there, and while looking around, my eye was caught by something peeping from under the fringe of tapestry. I lifted the curtain, and there was the picture behind the tapestry, 
reared up against a wall. He paused out of breath, for he had been talking very fast. It was well for you that Angelo was not there, remarked the baronet gravely, and speaking with a knowledge of the artist's character gained only with the past few minutes. He might have resented your intrusion with a pistol shot. He's quite capable of it. Ah, that he is, cried the old servant, surprised and delighted to find his master coming round to his way of thinking. That he is. Angelo may be his name, but Devilo would suit him better. And so, would you say, Sir Hugh, if you had seen his face this morning, when you were accusing us, servants, us, protested Furin, emphasizing the word with some dignity, of stealing the picture, I was watching him, and if you could have seen his wicked looks, the sparkle of his eyes, you wouldn't have wondered at that girl's fright. Others of us noticed his manner, but we didn't like to speak out. I am certain he was laughing in his sleeve at you, Sir Hugh, and saying to himself, Don't you wish you may find the picture again? It struck me at the time that it was he who had removed it. I interposed with the question which I was burning to put. What did you see in the studio besides the picture? I was so delighted at finding the picture that I didn't stop to examine the place, but hurried here at once to tell Sir Hugh of my discovery. But you couldn't enter the place without seeing something of it, I persisted. Tell us anything you did see. What's the place like? Well, sir, there was the usual furniture, the table and the chairs of carved oak, the walls and the floor are of stone, you know. There's tapestry round the walls, and the floor is covered with yellow sand. Why? I don't know. It's a whim of his, I suppose. There was an easel with a picture on it, which I didn't look at, brushes, paints, palettes, and things of that sort on the table. And that's, that's all I can remember, he added. Did you see nothing more? I asked. Where was the artist's model that Angelo spoke of at breakfast this morning, the lay figure that he paints from? I saw nothing resembling a lay figure, but then I wasn't in the place above a few seconds, and it was in half-darkness all the time. Is the fall of Caesar damaged in any way? asked the baronet. Not in the least, Sir Hugh. What have you done with it? I told Brown and Tompkins to carry it to the gallery. Quite right. Place it somewhere in the gallery. Anywhere will do for the present. See that's done, Fruin. And then lock the place up and bring the keys here. Give me the key of the nun's tower. I will examine the place tonight myself. Fruin, laying the keys down the table, departed on his errand. I'm off to the gallery, said I, preparing to follow the butler. I must see that picture. No, no, not now, said the baronet authoritatively and laying a restraining hand upon my arm. Time flies, and every moment is of value. Never mind the gallery for the present, unless you wish Angelo to escape us. I want you to take up your station at the entrance hall of the abbey, so as to be ready to shadow Angelo the moment he returns. Keep a watchful eye on him, for sure he overhears that the picture is found, and I dare say the servants are talking of nothing else at the present moment. He will be sure to seek safety in flight, knowing well that his crime is discovered. Detain him at the abbey by every means in your power till we return with the constable and a warrant for his arrest. Should he show a disposition to bolt, give the servants orders to seize him. Don't hesitate. I will take the responsibility. Supposing the guests should return without him, what then? I asked. Then you may depend upon that he has fled. 
In that case, off to the railway station at once. Make use of my name. Telegraph a description of him to the chief constable of Penzance. Say that a warrant is out for his arrest, and you may be in time to check his flight. Come, Leslie. Stay a minute, I cried, as both moved towards the door. What will the warrant charge Angelo with? With murder, of course. Stop. How can a warrant for murder be issued against a man unless you know the name of the victim? But I do know the name of the victim. What? I cried in amazement. You do? How have you found out? Who was it? You yourself have told me. And with these words, a complete enigma to me, the baronet darted off, accompanied by my uncle, who looked every whit as bewildered as myself. I was on the point of going to the hall, there to await Angelo, when Fruin came to the room. Has Sir Hugh gone out? he asked. Yes, but only for a little while, I answered. Do you want him particularly? Only to give him these keys, the butler replied, laying them on the table. Have you put the picture back in the gallery? Yes, sir, stood it on the table in the middle of the hall. Mr. Vasari must be very strong to have been able to carry it off by himself. It takes two of us to lift it. Ah, have the company returned yet? No, sir, they will not be back for a long time. Why, how's that? We've just had a boy from the vicarage to say so. Miss Wyville has persuaded them all to accompany the church choir in a round of carol singing. I found the news particularly agreeable. Sir Hugh could now procure the warrant without Angelo's having any idea of what was in store for him, and I should have ample time to study the weird picture and to examine the interior of the nun's tower, two occupations in which I resolved to have no companion. A vague feeling of peril gave a charm to the idea. I did not know what form the peril might take, but determined to be prepared for it in any shape, I took the liberty of borrowing a brace of loaded pistols which Sir Hugh kept in the drawer of his writing table. One for the ghost in the gallery, I said cheerfully to myself as I slipped it into my hip pocket, and one for the artist in the studio, and I slipped the second one into the other hip pocket. And now for the masterpiece. End of chapter 13. Recording by Anna Naumaska.